Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. Today, I have uh, the pleasure of uh, hosting Constantine. Am I saying it right? Is it Constantine or Constantin? In French, we'd say Constantin, but how would you yeah. say it? I'm not French, so I would say Constantin. Constantin Kissin, who is uh, the author of a new book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, which we'll get into. Also, the co-host with Francis Foster of Trigonometry. And we'll we'll get into some of the content of that very successful podcast later in the chat. He's a Russian-British comedian. You're also a member of the Evil Juice tribe, right? The Evil Juice? Absolutely. Yes. Extremely evil. <laughs> Extremely evil. Uh, and I guess we'll just get going. Let's begin first with a congratulation. You recently extended your genes, also known as you had a baby, correct? Yes, I did. I've got a three-month-old son. Um and it's incredible. It changes your perspective on so many things that I, I did not expect. Um, Give us some of those. Like, what, what are some uh, concrete ways by which your perspectives have changed? Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, it forces you to step up to another level of adulthood where your focus of attention becomes external instead of internal. And that was happening for me for some time anyway, because running trigonometry, we now have a bunch of employees and it's sort of my job to manage the team. So they were kind of like a family that I was looking after anyway. Uh, but when it's your baby and they're as helpless as a baby is, it changes the nature of everything. So I find that my attitude to other people has become softer as well because I see that they were once this perfect and completely helpless thing too. Um, so it's made me a bit softer and kinder, I think, which probably wasn't wasn't entirely unwelcome. I can offer you an evolutionary explanation for that soft, softer and kinder spirit. Mm. You, you ready? Yes. Uh, so it turns out that when fathers are expecting a child or shortly thereafter having a child, as you do, they have a rather precipitous drop in their testosterone. And so one of the arguments for that is that to the extent that we all have multiple Darwinian pulls, right? Uh, you know, we, we have a mating drive, we have a parental drive. Well, you now need to shift a lot more of your attention to your parental drive and a lot less spending 95% of your day thinking about sex. And one of the ways that nature has assured that is by having a drop in your libidinal hormonal profile, which is testosterone. That's very interesting. You're basically saying I've become less of a man. Thanks, Kat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Only temporarily. Only temporarily, right. Now, here's the other bad news, of course. Every day that we age, our testosterone also goes down. So your testosterone and mine when we were 20 is not the same as, at least for me, when I'm 57. Uh, but don't worry about it. You, you have so much manhood in you that even if you had your drop by 50%, you're still beating most men. All right, yeah. let's let's talk about uh, an immigrant's love letter to the West. Tell us about it, and then we can drill down to different details. Well, it's essentially, I mean, it does what it says on the cover. It's a book which explains and reminds people, you are fond of doing this yourself, Gad. We've had you on our show a couple of times. Uh, reminding people in the West that they're actually quite fortunate to be living here, and that if they were to spend the moment uh, to compare uh, their life in the West with the way that most people live around the world or most of our ancestors have lived throughout history, they'd maybe take for granted the things that we have a little bit less and appreciate them a little bit more. Um, and I'm really trying to reach, you know, I don't think that the crazy people who've, who've gone off the deep end can be reached at this point, and I'm not really particularly trying to reach them, but I think there's a, a sort of 80% of people in the middle who who will go along with whatever the trend of the day is. And if you tell them that the trend of the day is, you know, you need to put a black square on Instagram and apologize for being white and whatever, then they'll do that. And if you tell them that maybe that's not necessary, then they'll maybe not go along with that. So I just wanted to offer, a, you know, a bit of historical and geographical context for people living in the West. Uh, someone who was born in the Soviet Union, whose family went through the gulags, who's I watched my grandparents be essentially forced out of uh, the Soviet Union. They were sort of cancelled in the, before that was cool uh, for saying the wrong thing. I've seen all of this before, so I'm troubled by the direction of some of the uh, of the the changes and the shifts that are happening in Western society. But also, I believe that with the right adjustments, we can remain uh, what we have been for for decades now, which is the center of genuine progress, whether that's scientific or cultural or technological or musical or comedic or whatever, we can maintain that and, and grow that. 
provided we're willing to to have a an honest conversation about our past about who we are about values uh, and things that matter so that that's really the book and i you know with my comedy background mm-hmm. i wanted to uh sweeten the the medicine a little bit so it's it's funny as well and people can just enjoy reading it um but also you know i'm 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 concerned not only about the division and the, some of the, 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 the sheer stupidity of some of these idea pathogens, as you call them, that we've we've been adopting in the West, but more importantly, I'm concerned that as we weaken ourselves, we have threats around the world and enemies around the world. We don't we like to pretend this isn't the case, of course, but we do have enemies and they are taking advantage. They are accelerating this division and this nonsense. And they're doing this because they know that it benefits them. It benefits Russia. It benefits China to see the West obsessing about, you know, systemic this and, and whatever internalize that because it means that we've taken our off the ball. And uh, while we're busy trying to define a woman, they're busy building weapons and you know, <laughs> expanding their power around the world. So that's that's where the book's coming from. Uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, a lot of people have read it. It's become a Sunday Times bestseller here in the UK. Um, so it's resonated with a lot of people. And I'm really grateful for that. Is I mean, so in my case, as as you know, from, you know, having read my stuff and, I, and you've been kind enough to invite me on your show, as you said a couple of times, in my case, living in the university ecosystem is what allowed me to, you know, navigate and swim in this endless bullshit all day long. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, so. So it's clear in my case why it would be that I would have written The Parasitic Mind because, I mean, I'm infected by this stuff or at least those ideas try to infect me every day for the past 30 years. In your case, what was the catalyst? Was it your comedy career where you were, you know, uh, exposed to political correctness or what was the catalyst that said, wait a minute, we've got a problem here? Well, it's a couple of things. Uh, It was three things, I would say. So the first one is, you're right, uh, in comedy around the time that I was starting to make my way in in the comedy world, I saw this just very powerful trend because as as we all know, politics is downstream from culture. So the political shifts that we've (coughs) been talking about for the last six years, they were happening already in the cultural sphere before that. And so, so by 2015, 2016, particularly Brexit and Trump obviously had a big effect. But even before that, there was this sudden creeping. It wasn't just political correctness only. It wasn't just about censorship of material and self-censorship. It was also the second thing that I was going to say, which I have a a deep uh, disdain for identity politics in any form. I have a, and this is partly, I think, because of my Soviet background. I saw what happens when you say, these people are good, these people are bad. And you divide people into these groups. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, obviously, in the Soviet, the communist case, you divide people by class and you say these people are the downtrodden, the oppressed, the working class. And and these people are the evil capitalist, you know, bourgeoisie oppressors. Uh, And that that can that is enough to get you to kill 50 million people. But then you take this racial stuff and you start to play to people's ethnic uh, you know, concerns. You start to go, well, you are white and you are black. That to me is a big concern. And I saw this in comedy. I saw, you know, 20 year old guys going on stage and going, oh, you know, I'm a straight white man, therefore this. And I just saw this sort of seeping into the culture. And it really, really bothered me. It really bothered me. It, it, to me, this is a very dangerous way of thinking about the world. It's a very dangerous idea, and particularly in multi-ethnic societies like the ones that we have in, in Canada, in the US, and in the UK particularly, and, and in other countries too, of course, in the Anglosphere in particular. We are multi-ethnic societies, and that means we have to work that little bit extra hard to ensure that we have a harmonious society, because you, you'll know this way better than I do, of course. You know, we are born, we are evolved to be tribal. We are evolved, the, the very hormones that make us bind to our group make us hostile to the out group. So we do have to work hard to make sure that we are a cohesive, coherent society. Um, and so seeing people deliberately leaning into this racial and, by the way, gender divisiveness, you know, I mean, the idea that men and women, uh, two groups of people who've, who've historically needed to work so much together just to survive. The idea that these people should be forced to engage in some sort of battle of the sexes is the most moronic thing I've ever heard. And again, this was happening. And the third thing, of course, with my 
you know, again, Soviet background and the history of my family, seeing that some of these things are genuinely creeping into Western thinking and Western behavior. You know, my grandfather, uh, he was ostracized by his friends, fired from work. His wife was fired from work because he said that the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was wrong. And he didn't say it during Stalin's period. He said it in the 1980s. Wow. Uh, and what happened to him? <clears throat> I mean, that's really not that different to somebody who says the wrong thing now. Uh, and lots of other things, you know, political correctness, most people don't know, but it comes from the Soviet Union. That's where it was created. And the purpose of it was never to protect people from offense or to ensure politeness or to ensure that people were considerate to others. The purpose of political correctness was to say, well, what you're saying is true, but it's inconvenient to the party line. It is inconvenient to the dogma of the day. And so as I see that, you know, form of censorship and, and oppression of our thinking take root, I, I'm kind of triggered by it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, it bothers me. Uh, and it bothers me that the West will choose to move in this direction. Uh, the redefinition of words, which has been very powerful, is again something very similar. Because if you can change the meaning, look at the word, you know, we've talked about this, of course, before. But, you know, look at the meaning of something like safety. Safety does not mean the absence of physical violence, which it used to mean until three seconds ago. Safety now means that you're not, you are not expressing the ideas that I don't like. Right. Uh, inclusion is the same. The most inclusive space is one where you and I would be extremely excluded in and probably <laughs> quite unsafe in the old definition of it. And on and on we go. So there are a few changes that are happening in society in the West that trouble me because they echo some of the things that I've seen. So it's the comedy it's the racial and sexual divisiveness and it's also the fact that we seem to be moving at least in some pockets of our society in a more communist direction oh great uh, all-encompassing answer now let me ask you this did you discover your hunter badgerhood uh, mm -hmm. as as a result of having to you know uh, address uh, these you know these trends that were developing in the west or had you always i mean could you go back to when you were six where someone said something that you disagreed with and you stood up or is this a newly found ability well i think it's a combination of all of them but i think if i'm honest uh, you know i love my dad and we have a great relationship now but when i was born my mum had been 18 for four days and my dad was 20 so they were very young they didn't particularly know what they were doing um, and my dad in particular, you know, I think I would be accurate in saying he was a bit of a bully when I was a kid. And my childhood, my teenage years in particular, were sort of unstoppable force me to movable object. Uh, that was kind of my relationship with my dad. And I developed this very strong sense that uh, I refuse <clears throat> to bow to illegitimate authority, illegitimate authority. And uh, when you're young, it's quite hard to distinguish between legitimate authority and illegitimate authority. So you're rebelling against everything. Uh, as you mature, hopefully, I hope I've been able to do that. You start to go, well, it's great that I have this deep sense of fairness and I care about people being treated fairly and I care about me being treated fairly, too. And I'm going to fight to make sure that that happens while also appreciating that no, not all authority is bad, not all you know structures are bad, etc. And I, that's kind of where I am now, I hope. I, 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 re, I resist very strongly uh, attempts to brainwash me or to tell me that you know white is black and black and white, black is white when I can see it with my own eyes. And you know I'm, I come from generations of men and women who, who said no who said, no, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and if that means I end up in a camp, that's where I'm going to end up. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to bend the knee. I'm not going to pretend that the emperor is, is dressed when he's blatantly naked and quite ugly at that. I'm not going to do it. And so, uh, you know, I also feel that I owe it to them. And now, of course, we, we talked about my son being born. I have an example to set for him. I want him to grow up uh, and be a man who stands up for the things that are right and refuses to pretend and go along uh, with things that are wrong. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought back the, the issue of your son being born because I've often in the past when my children were born, my wife would say to me, you know, why, why, why must you take on the mantle of every fight? And it's not, mm. it's not for you to be, you know, the savior and so on. And I said, well, first of all, I'm allergic to bullshit. So very much like you, how, how you get upset when you see untruth, I can't help but 
you know, intervene. But secondly, once you have children, you realize that uh, you're not just fighting for your time span, right? Lifespan. Uh-huh. You're, you're right. So if, for example, the, the West is being Islamized at a breathtaking, accelerating rate, uh, then we can discuss whether it's a good thing for the West to be more Islamized or would it, would it be better if it were less Islamized, right? And, and, and I may be able to outrun it within my lifespan, but certainly my children won't be able to. So I, I think I agree with you that having children, uh, as you said, allows you to refocus in all sorts of ways. And one of which is in, in how urgent it becomes to deal with a lot of these issues because I don't want them to go through all these battles that I had to go through. Mm. And the, the the other piece, too, I think, to parenthood as well is I, I want my children to see me and to see what it means to stand up for what you believe in. Right. right. So I want to be an example to them of, you know, as best I can. Of course, I'm not perfect, but uh, I want to be an example to them of what it means to, to be honest and what it means to be truthful. And that actually. We are fortunate, Gad, and I say this always, whenever we talk about, you know, cancel culture and all of this, 500 years ago, people like me and you would have been burned at the stake. Mm. Now, actually, maybe for the first time in history, the short term pain of standing up and saying no is actually quite often worth the long term benefit, not just internally, but on a practical level, you know, in terms of building an audience or building a YouTube show or building your, your audience as a comedian or, or, or whatever, uh, being able to write books about things that matter to you and have people read those books and pay for them. We are, for the first time, I think, you know, the dissidents and, and the heretics, we are allowed, for the most part, in the West at least, to survive uh, the, 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 the process and, and to benefit from this. So I want my children also to see that, you know, you can... Uh, be truthful and you will take the punishment initially, but you'll be rewarded in the long run. And I think that's the best way for people in the modern world to, to do what's right is to show them that actually it then benefits you too. That right. It makes it a lot easier to do the right thing if it actually benefits you in the long run. Too. Well, I mean, you probably have heard this this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, right? When, when you do something for intrinsic reasons, I'm taking this degree simply because I love learning. Whereas extrinsic mm. would be I'm taking, I'm doing this degree because it's going to improve my lot in the job market, right? And And when you intervene in the way that we do, uh, there is the intrinsic reason, which is it's the right thing to do. But as you mm-hmm. said, the extrinsic reason is that if you look at history, history is not shaped by equivocating fence sitters, right? History is shaped for better or worse by people who are dogmatic, opinionated. Uh, and I don't mean to imply that if you weigh in on these issues, you have to be a dogmatic, uh, you know, asshole. But it, the world is shaped, right? I mean, Hitler shaped the world through the most vile of ways, but he was certainly taking a position. Christopher Hitchens is revered the way that he is because he takes positions and he doesn't suffer suffer fools gladly. So if you're looking at an intrinsic reason to build your YouTube channel, have a better career, you're never going to do it by being an equivocating uh, fence sitter. Mm. Yeah, oh, well, we, I'm sure we'll get into that when we get round to talking about the Sam Harris situation. Yes, because we will. <laughs> you, you may find that I am more of an of a. What, what did you say? What kind of fence sitter? Equivocating fence sitter. Equiv- uh, I don't know if I'm an equivocating fence sitter, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see okay. what comes out of that conversation. Okay. Uh, well, so let's hold off on that for a second. Uh, yeah. Do you want to discuss at all uh, your comedy background? Because you told me offline that you're not doing as much, if at all, any stand-up comedy. W- why is that, by the way? Well, so uh, up until the pandemic, I was doing stand-up, and it meant basically most people don't realize this, but certainly in the UK, being a stand-up comedian means that you drive around for hours every day to a gig and back. So usually I, my day looked like I'd be doing trigonometry stuff all day during the day, jump in the car at five o'clock, get to, to the show at seven, and I'd be home by midnight, one o'clock at best. So, uh, and it was sort of, it was killing my health, uh, my marriage was getting close to the point where, you know, the baby that we have now wasn't going to be around and maybe <laughs> neither was my wife with, you know, who's a treasure for me. And we've been together since uh, since we were very young. And it's the most our relationship was the most valuable thing to me. Um, 
And when the pandemic hit, we started doing what we call raw shows. So we have trigonometry, the interviews, which you've done. And we also do a raw show, which is very offensive, uh, outrageous commentary on the news, comedic. And Francis and I sit there and joke about all sorts of stuff. We do every accent under the sun, uh, read loads of articles, you know, talk about what's going on in our lives. And so the comedic outlet is still there, but the desire to drive to a gig three mile, three and three hours drive away every night uh, to stand on stage in front of you know a few hundred people or whatever that is completely gone. I get the creative outlet through through the raw shows that we have, and the downsides of the comedy lifestyle. I just I, I can't do it anymore. So um, yeah, but I, I had I really enjoyed my 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 stand up career, and I'm not saying it's over. What I'm saying is I'm on a break. And if that break lasts the rest of my life, then so be it. Right. You know, I uh, I had a postdoc at one point, a postdoctoral student whose uh, doctoral dissertation was on the evolutionary roots of comedy, of humor. The idea being that uh, humor is a sexually selected trait. Well, not, not humor per se, but intelligence is a sexually selected mm. trait. And so to the extent that we often hear women saying that, you know, I'm really attracted to a funny guy, they are effectively saying by proxy that they're attracted to to a, a, an intelligent guy because it's difficult to be truly witty, truly sarcastic, satirical, funny if you're dull as a as a doorknob, right? So... Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Has has that been your experience anecdotally that all of the comedians that you meet tend to be rather intelligent folks? Definitely not. Definitely uh, not. Violating not, but the... I, okay. But, but, but I also agree with you. So I think there are a lot of people in the comedy industry who would like to be attractive to women by being funny. That does not necessarily mean that they are funny or that they are intelligent. Uh, but yeah, I think the best comedians are undoubtedly have a, a certain form of intelligence, I would say, uh, that is valuable. And uh, when we had uh, Diana Fleischman on our show, oh, yes. an evolutionary psychologist, sure. uh, too, she made this point as well, that it's all about, you know, increasing your uh, attractiveness to, to the opposite sex for men, for men yeah, exactly. um, in particular. Um, and I do think it's true. Uh, com I mean, comedy, generally speaking, the comedy industry, it's a little bit different than the United States because the type of humor is different than the United States. But in Britain, the comedy industry is essentially 99% beta males who want to get laid. That, like, that's, right? that, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, ca as characters, I don't mean right. that they're, you know, they, they, they may off stage, they may be something else, right. but probably not. But generally, that tends to be that tends to be the way it works. It's also because of the British sense of humor too. the British sense of humor is particularly uh, dependent on the, the, the comedian being the fall guy. Uh, in, in America, the comedy can be like, I am the hero that looks at right. the world and points out the hypocrisies. And that's kind of more the comedy that I used to do, actually. But in Britain, the, the most popular type of comedy is look how fat I am, look how stupid I am, look how... It's how, a, it's how a form of self-deprecation. Self-deprecation to the extreme level. Do, do you have a thought as, as to why that cross-cultural difference in humor styles has evolved to be the way that it is in the U.S. versus Britain? I don't know why it evolved to be that way. I mean, I have some theories on that, I would sure. say. I think, so America is a young country. is kind of like a teenager, right? Uh, and the teenager is, you know, he's out there, he's trying to do stuff, he wants to look cool, he wants to... And Britain is an old country, it's had its empire, and it's sort of a little bit, you know, it's lost the testosterone, let's say. Uh, coming back to our conversation. So, um, you know, and in Britain, there's a culture of, you know, you mustn't stand out too much. You know, tall poppy syndrome. This is when we were on Joe Rogan with Francis a few weeks ago. This is one of the things we talked about a lot. Uh, you know, one of the things I really like about America is there's a sort of go get it attitude and people will support you if they see you doing well. In the UK, less so. Uh, and in Ireland, they even have the saying, uh, Ireland has, you know, its own culture and very rich culture, but it, it's got, a, you know, it's tinged with British history for obvious reasons. They have the saying, if you start sort of start thinking that you are good and successful and whatever, they say, he's got the notions. You've got the notions of, you know, grandeur or whatever right. it is. So we have this thing in the UK where we, you, you mustn't stand out too much. You mustn't right. think too much of yourself. You, you've got to always pretend. It's interesting. I don't know if you know Bridget Fettersy. Um, I do. I love Bridget so much. And uh, one of the things she asks all her guests is, uh, what is your greatest strength and your greatest weakness? And she says that all her British guests 
never, ever struggled to say what their greatest weakness is and always, always struggled to say what their greatest strength is. Because in Britain, you're not supposed to admit that you have strengths. So, so I wouldn't do well in Britain, given that I've given myself the moniker Dr. Goodlooks. That would not be very British. <laughs> no, I don't think it would. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah, going back to self-deprecation for, for a second, so, and linking it back, of course, to my interest in evolutionary theory, self-deprecation could be viewed as a costly signal in, in the biological sense, right? So costly signaling is the idea that in order for a signal to be honest, it must be costly to you. So the peacock's tail is because it is burdensome, because it makes you mm. more likely to be picked up by the predators, then if I'm still wearing that big peacock's tail and I'm still around, then the peahens can can be confident that I am a superior genetic stock because despite my tail, look at me, I'm standing. So to, to have the self-confidence to be self-deprecating is the ultimate measure of confidence, right? Because, and, and if, if I can speak of myself, I can engage both in faux aggrandizing if you've seen me on Twitter or mm -hmm. how I just did, right? Now, people don't get that. It's actually, I, I'm, I'm being, so for example, I will post a selfie at a beach and I'll say stupendous, sublime, uh, sexy, and the beach is also nice. Now, mm -hmm. most people will get that I'm I'm doing this shtick, right? This self-aggrandizing shtick, but yeah. yet my haters will construe it as pathological narcissism. So they don't get this subtle interplay between self-deprecation, faux self-aggrandizing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that, well, it's part, kind of part of the feature of the modern world as well, which is, your haters don't want to understand what you're saying. They want to find a way to misinterpret it as badly <laughs> as possible. And, of course, a lot of people don't understand sarcasm. They don't understand irony. Uh, you know, uh, when this Sam Harris clip went super viral in the last few days, Francis and I, on one of our raw shows, pretended to be upset that not enough people tagged us in the conversations about him because we fake we get fake outraged about everything it, it was the same video where i pretended to be outraged by my three months old son not letting me sleep because the funny thing is like how could you expect a three-month-old they don't have it's amazing they don't they don't make conscious decisions right but people don't want to understand the irony or maybe they're not capable i don't know why and so yeah i mean look the, the, the world is such now when people have the opportunity to misinterpret everything you say and do in the way that helps them and it's it's not fair to, to what you're doing um but i think also uh, you're right actually coming back to, to the self-deprecation and the comedy thing i always said the most difficult thing to do and the thing that requires the most confidence on stage is to be self-deprecating yeah. because if people sense that the self-deprecation is real as in you actually you know, feel bad about being overweight or you actually feel bad about your life being chaos or whatever it is or not being able to find a spouse, then they just feel sorry for you. So it has to be, you, yeah, have, exactly. to deliver, you have to deliver these tragic truth bombs about your shitty life with a, a lot of confidence. Otherwise, people will just feel bad for you. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. You know, uh, in, in my own context, I mean, I, as, as you know, I mean, I use humor and sarcasm and satire uh, tons of times. It, it's a unique feature of my reality because I'm also, you know, the, the fancy schmancy professor. And so the archetype of the professor should be that I'm always solemn. I always have a haughty air of profundity, right? Mm -hmm. I, I smoke a pipe while pontificating in the air because I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I am here. You're just a little rube. When, you, when you're funny, when you engage through your humor in a form of existential self-deprecation, right? I mean, it takes a lot of uh, self-confidence, if I may say, to do the skits where I'm hiding under my desk or mm. to don a pink, uh, you know, uh, uh, wi wig and pretend that I'm ultra woke or to yeah. literally self-flagellate myself. Now, a lot of the imbeciles and morons, some of whom are my colleagues, will write to me <laughs> privately and say, well, you know, you're the greatest, blah, blah, blah. but, you know, why do you demean yourself through your humor? And I say... Now I absolutely know that this person is a certified moron because they don't appreciate what satire, but never mind, just humor 
is part of the rich tapestry of life. I'm a multifaceted being, right? If I am being interviewed right now about the evolutionary roots of morality, I'll be as professorial and austere as you might expect of that situation. But in other situations, as if humans have behavioral flexibility, I can be a joker and a buffoon. And it's it's so regrettable to me that I exist in a profession where to be always serious, serious is to be profound. Whereas in your case, you don't really have that because you were a comedian. So at least you're allowed the opportunity to be funny. We expect that of you. But professors should never be funny. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very silly limitation that people will try to impose on your profession too. Because if you think about, you know, as comedians, we think about punchlines. You're basically the way that the stand-up act works, particularly when you're starting out, is no one knows who you are. So there is no pre-existing buy-in you go on stage and you're buying people's time with your jokes so you go in you say a joke people go okay i'll give this guy another five seconds you do another joke okay maybe this guy's worth another six seconds and over time that's what you're doing and so i i sometimes do serious talks about some of the stuff that i cover in the book uh, about you know the west and all of that i always make sure to load that up with humor between the serious points because i want you to know that another punchline is coming. And it may be coming five seconds from now, it may be coming 10 minutes from now, but here's a, a punchline so that you know another one is coming. And in between, I wanna squeeze in the, yeah. the stuff that I actually wanna communicate. And that, in my opinion, is a very powerful tool, whether you're a professor, a comedian, a YouTuber, or whatever, like humor, will buy you people's attention in a way that almost nothing else will. Well, and it's funny because oftentimes when I'm you know, stopped on the streets by fans, uh, I'm not sure if I should feel comp- that it's a compliment or not, that typically they will refer to my funny tidbits more often than not. Oh, oh my God, I love your self-flagellation routine, right? So they're not coming up to me and saying, you know, I loved your hormonal uh, analysis <laughs> published in the paper organizational behavior and human decision processes so it sticks right comic now of course behind it there's a very serious intent which is i'm trying to persuade you of an important message right so yes. some of the most brilliant people in history have been famous satirists and that's why as you know in the soviet union or anywhere else where you have dictators the first people we have to get rid of are the people with the sharp tongues not the guys with yes. the big muscles the guys with the big muscles are easy to handle but the guy who, through a couple of well-placed words, can, can bring you down, that's the guy we have to eliminate. Oh, 100%. And this is why I talk in An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. This is why I feel so passionately about the importance of being able to satirize both sides of the political spectrum and people in power, whether that power is political or cultural or whatever. Because I saw with my own eyes, we had in the 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, a b- brilliant satirist called Viktor Shenderovich in Russia. He made uh, an equivalent of what in the UK was called spitting image. These are puppets of politicians talking and having conversations. And this was the first time in, obviously in my life, I was very young, but also in my parents' lives and even in, the, in their parents' lives, three generations, the first time when they got to see their political leaders actually being made fun of. And mm-hmm. it was incredible. And guess what? The moment Vladimir Putin came to power, the first thing he did, shut it down. Beautiful. Exactly right. Uh, Okay, we're quickly hurling towards our meeting with Sam Harris. But before we do that, set the ground for us in terms of trigonometry. I mean, your platform has grown immensely. I mean, I remember the first time you had reached out to me when you, you know, for me to come on the first time, if I compare where you were then to where you are now, I mean, it's unbelievable how it's grown. How did you get the idea to start it? How did you connect with Francis Foster? Give us the story and then we'll delve into Sam Harris's show. Yeah, well, I'll give you the brief summary then. So in uh, April 2018, uh, Francis and I, we were both comedians. We were playing many of the same clubs. He he helped to run a comedy club where I was a regular, one of their regular performers. So we spent a bit of time together and we sort of worked out like kind of like in the Soviet Union, like sort of, are you, are you you're not on board with, right? Yeah. And we sort of got that. Um, and I had been watching a lot of people like you 
and others, you know, having conversations about these things and, and thinking about these things myself and realizing that, you know, I'm not like the people in my industry. I don't like what's happening in my industry. I don't, uh, I'm not on board with it. And it's time for me to speak out about it, frankly. And I would not feel good if I was sitting quietly in the corner, as many comedians still do, and pretending that everything is fine. Um, so I, I've seen the inspiration and, you know, at the, uh, you know, Joe Rogan was obviously having some of these conversations. And at the time, I was a big fan of Dave Rubin's show. You know, he's gone in his own direction since, uh, which is. Oh, let me stop you. Let me stop you. I, I, I'm sensing kind of a disappointment, a, a, a tinge of disappointment in what you just said. Is that true? Did I pick that up correctly? Not disappointment. Uh, it's it's less of the show that it was that I loved. Got it. Right. Dave has chosen a team and he's on that team. And that's cool. People are allowed to be on the left team or the right team or the blue team or the red team. What I was fascinated by is what we are still trying to do with trigonometry, which is having conversations with different people from different sides from a place of inquisitiveness and curiosity. Yeah. And I still think that Dave has that, but I, I do think he's lent into his own opinions, yeah. which is which is cool for him, and he's entitled to do that. But but what inspired me was the the more curious and gotcha. sort of, you know that that's yeah. that's what I mean. You know, I have uh, nothing but love for Dave. You know, he inspired me to do what I do. I wouldn't be where I am without him. His locals platform is absolutely fantastic. Trigonometry, we uh, use it. Am, I an, am I an utter moron for not having yet signed up on locals? Uh, I would never call the Godfather an utter moron, <laughs> uh, but I, I would recommend that yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. I'm way but, late to the game. I, I agree. Yeah, it works very well for us because it, it gives you a, a community vibe yeah. as well as the support for you. So you can interact with people and they interact with each other. That's the thing. So you're building. A community so yeah Dave, Dave's cool but what I'm saying is what we wanted to do is you know I never people often think that the way to to be successful or to do something that you want to do is to look at what other people are doing and to imitate that and that is a sure fire way to fail yeah. because no one wants to watch the second best or the 10th best Joe Rogan show or the whatever. People want to see something that's authentic. So when Francis and I started trigonometry, we thought, well, look, one of the most important things is you've got to give people space to speak. And Joe does that brilliantly. You've got to invite interesting people, obviously. But also, you know, one of the things we looked at the way that Dave did is he had a more condensed and a more focused interview. <clears throat> and the visual presentation was always on point, right? It looked good. And I always thought that was very important. So we pulled a few pieces together and then we added our own, which is we felt it was really important to sweeten the pill of intellectual discussion with humor and comedy and lightness too. Uh, and uh, the, the the final pieces, I think both neither Francis or I pretend to be uh, anything that we're not. Uh, you know, the currency of the internet is authenticity. And... Uh, you know, Francis would would say that he's sort of the voice of the working person, the ordinary person. He doesn't pretend to be an intellectual, whereas I am more interested in ideas and the intellectual conversations. And so that combination together means that when we're talking to a guest like you, we get some of the intellectual stuff, but we also get some of the like, well, what would a guy in the pub having a pint want to ask Gadside? You know what right. I mean? Right. And, and that's been the formula that really worked for us. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. So let's come to the Sam Harris part. And and as I promised off air and as I always do with all my guests, uh, it'll be very, very polite, very respectful. Our goal here is not to badmouth Sam Harris or any such thing, but rather it was a very, very uh, powerful conversation. And actually one of the rare ones where I actually went back and because at first I only saw the snippets, the viral stuff, which everybody was tagging me on, knowing that I'd probably have something to say about it. And then I said, you know what, let me let's see if it's taken out of context or not. So I, I, I owe it to Sam before I take a position to kind of watch everything, which I did. Fantastic interview. You guys really uh, handled it with with grace and majesty. Uh, so before I give you my position, which you may have seen in a clip that I released it was a short clip. Give us your take on the entire thing. Take it wherever you want to go. Well, I don't know where to start. So first of all, I'm very annoyed that despite the viralness of the clips, 
people haven't watched the full interview because Sam, other than the Trump stuff, which we can set aside and talk about separately, it's actually a fabulous interview. Yes. Uh, and what Sam says about social media, what Sam says about the religion of wokeness, what Sam says about how to be a more contented and happy human being, which is the majority of the interview. And on our locals, we have some paywall content, which is bonus questions from our fans yes. for Sam. That stuff is really good as well. There's a robust discussion about vaccines where we, him and I particularly have a very different point of view. And there's some other stuff that we talk about, which is, you know, in a world which is overflowing with information, you know, how do we manage that as human beings? So, so first of all, I'm frustrated by the fact that not enough people for my liking have done what you did and went and watched the actual right. interview because setting the Trump stuff aside, it's actually a great conversation. Uh, I really like Sam. He was an incredibly nice person to be around. He was very generous with his time. Um, you know, we had some tech difficulties. We, we booked him for an hour. We started nearly an hour late and he gave us another two hours of his time, right. which is for a guy who is as busy and as in demand as he is. Is incredibly generous, yes. and he was very, very nice. Um, in terms of the the Trump stuff, I this is where I learned something from Joe Rogan because when we were on his show, I asked him about uh, a conversation. I don't know if you're into boxing, Gad. Um, not, not much. So much. Yeah. Not much. Well, he had a guest on who used to be one of Mike Tyson's trainers. I'm sure you know who Mike Tyson. Yeah, of course. Is, right? And uh, this guy who used to train Mike Tyson was bad-mouthing Mike Tyson on Joe's show and saying that Mike Tyson never won a fight. He, he beat people who were worse than him by a long way, but every time he was in a fight, in a dogfight, yeah. he lost every time. That's what he was saying. And Joe let him speak for like 20 minutes about this, and then they had a conversation. And I said to Joe, like, how did you handle this? You've got a, a guy you like and respect who is bad-mouthing one of the greatest boxers in the world's history who you also like and respect, and he's doing it on your show. And he said, well, I let him express himself. That's the most important thing. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that the conversation went the way that it went with Sam is that he was allowed to express his views. And that's really important because I think in almost every other interview, he would have been interrupted after a few seconds with people jumping down the throat. So can I interrupt you right there? Since you of course. Uh, so you're speaking about the value of the procedural details of how to conduct yes. an optimal interview, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. But, uh, I mean, I could... I'm, I'm, I was getting there. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So yeah, yeah, for, yeah, forgive know, me for interrupting you. Okay. But what Joe also said after he answered my question about how to be an interviewer is, I don't agree with what this guy said. And, when, and I... I think I make it very clear what my view is in the conversation that we have with Sam. I don't agree, um, you know, whether he said that he said it in this way or not. I, let me say positively what I believe. I believe that the most important thing in a democracy is that both sides of the political spectrum are treated equally. I think that is the most important thing. And the moment that stops being the case, the path to the destruction of that society and that democracy is very clear to me. Yes. So to me, the idea that we would overlook the, um, the corruption or the dishonesty or the, you know, the shenanigans of one side because the other side is worse, to me, that is against my principles. Yes. Uh, I don't believe that either side has a right to conspire together in whatever way uh, they they can to prevent the other side from winning in a way that's unfair. That is not. I I don't support that idea, and I certainly, you know, feel very strongly that that is the wrong way to approach this, which I made clear to Sam in our conversation. So let me let me uh, rephrase what you said in a uh, in a slightly different way, and this is kind of a summary of what. I put out a clip a few days ago that was very short, three, four minutes, but really got to the point. I'm going to summarize those points. So in, in, uh, in the field of ethics, there are, there's a distinction between two types of ethical bents. There's what's called deontology 
or consequentialism. De deontological statements would be, it is never okay to lie. It's an absolute truth that is inviolable, okay? Consequentialism is uh, when my partner, my wife, my spouse asks me, do I look fat in those jeans? Then I put on my consequentialist hat and I say, of course not. Why? Because I'd like to remain married and I'm telling a white, I'm telling a white lie so that I can spare someone's feelings. Now, for, for most things in life, we all tend to oscillate between these two systems. For many, many things in daily social dynamics, we are consequentialists and that's perfectly fine. But when you're talking about the foundational values that define the beauty of our Western cultures, those foundational principles are fully, unequivocally deontological. So for example, presumption of innocence is a principle that doesn't only apply to the people that we really care about and, and respect. It applies to Brett Kavanaugh. So when someone says he has been a gang rapist going up and down the eastern board, I don't exactly remember it. It happened 40 years ago. It may have happened. It may not have happened. But, you know, it's too serious to allow this guy to become a justice because uh -huh. we can't afford him presumption of innocence because after all, this is not a jury case. I mean, it's not a criminal case. It's just an, a, a job interview. Well, it's okay if uh, Donald Trump is taken off the platform because sure, sure, freedom of speech is important, but ultimately this is a private company. And anyways, we should not be giving freedom of speech to those that we know are asteroids catapulting all the way to Earth. So there was a constant repetitive, not only on your show, but in the five, six years since Trump came to offer where Sam, who is a philosopher, who is a bright man, who is a moral man, has violated the most fundamental principle that deontological principles can never be violated. So what I did in my case, I will interject myself into the situation. I like Sam a lot. I've had dinner with Sam. He was a friend of mine. There is nothing personal. I don't care about personal things because we're not such good friends that we're calling each other every day. But we've had a very positive interaction through the years. He's invited me on his show. For four or five years, I sat quietly while he went hysterical. And not just hysterical. I don't care if he's hysterical. But once you're violating values that really matter to me in the defense of the West, then I started feeling inauthentic and in not speaking out against him, right? Because I was now torn between two systems. One, my loyalty and commitment to people whom I know, therefore I don't want to be making fun of them publicly and so on. So I kept my mouth shut for four or five years, but then I'm also committed to the truth and therefore I have to speak out just because, I mean, you could be my father and you could say stupid stuff and I'm going to have to intervene because truth is more important than my relationship to my father. And so I very tepidly and playfully a while ago, about a year ago, did one or two sarcastic things where I, I, I was ribbing on Sam precisely because of his hysteria. You know, I hid under the table, Donald Trump and so on, Malibu meditator. Now, someone who, in my view, would have reacted properly would be, ha ha, God, you got me. Hey, come on my show. Why don't I come on your show and let's debate whether my consequentialism is correct or whether your deontologic perspective is the correct one but instead what he did he blocked me now now the the morons say oh gad is upset because he blocked him i couldn't give a shit i've got a great wife a great ha house a, a best-selling book i'm healthy i've got great children sam is number 187 on my list of i care about but what to me it says and i know it puts you in a difficult position because he was a guest of yours and so on what to me it says is precisely what i talk about the parasitic mind which is you can take someone as educated as Sam, as lovely as Sam, as sweet as Sam, but once we find the idea pathogen that he is weak to, in this case, Trump, then he can be parasitized, right? And that to me is disappointing because otherwise the, the list of great qualities of Sam are truly quite long. And so I feel sorry that it has gotten to this. Sorry to be long-winded. No, no, no. I, I, I hear you. I, I don't... Look, I cannot possibly know 
the nature of your relationship with Sam, who said what, how it went down or whatever. However, here's what I would say, and this isn't in defense of Sam, it's more in defense of me, because I sometimes block people who behave towards me in a similar way as you've described you were behaving towards Sam. I'm not saying it's the same because I don't know the nature of your relationship. However, here's how I think about Twitter, right? I am a public person to some extent. You are a public person to some extent. To me, Twitter is my workplace, okay? So when I go on Twitter, it's essentially me going into the office. Now, if I had a friend five or six years ago with whom we'd fallen out over something or disagreed over something or simply went our separate ways, and then five years down the line, I said something that he profoundly disagreed with, it if I went to the office every day and this guy was at the door going, here, here's, uh, you know, talking to all the people in the street about how I'm an idiot. I'm not saying you said that, but yeah. do you, I'm exaggerating. Sure, right? sure, sure. Um, I consider like if somebody was standing in my office every day talking to a bunch of people about how wrong I am about a certain issue, like I'd be like, well, you're entitled to that view, but do I have to listen to it every day when I come to work? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, so from my perspective, uh, I, I and look, this has happened to me. I've, tr uh, you know, you said sarcastic. I call it a bit of trolling. Like during the COVID thing, for example, Claire Lehman and I yeah. ha had a bit of a thing. And yeah. eventually she blocked me. Yeah. And I didn't like that she blocked me. But as I thought about it later, I was like, I can totally see that there was a, a large number of people making fun of her, having a go. At her. She saw me as one of those people. She blocked me. Thankfully, Claire is someone who, who has the decency to eventually later reach out to me. We cleaned it up. We, we, we yeah. have, you know, we're in touch, etc. But my point is this, like, I think this idea that someone blocked you, therefore it means this. It, it's a little bit of a, it's a bit of a leap of logic. It's not necessarily that. Like Sam, right, for the last few days is going through something that is deeply unpleasant. I don't care how much you meditate, right? Yeah. When you've got millions of people around the world, uh, you know, saying you're the worst thing and blah, blah, blah. It's difficult. And so uh, if you see people, particularly people who, who were friends of yours with whom you were in touch, you may not be right that they are doing so unfairly, but you may see them as part of this yeah. big mob of people who are attacking you, many of whom are attacking you unfairly. They're not doing what Gad Saad may have been doing, which is saying, here is where your argument is flawed. Yeah. A lot of them are saying, you're the worst person that's ever lived, and I hope you die. And actually, it's funny, because I was reading some of those comments on Twitter, and at first, I was going to reply to some of them in defense of Sam, right? Saying, you know, you could disagree with his stuff, as I did very politely and respectfully in the clip that I released, without calling him. I, I even have a, a friend of mine, whom you may know, uh, Nassim Talib, the, the, mm. the Lebanese author, who, uh, you know, has gone after Sam, uh, you know, in the past in ways that I at the time found quite, quite rough. Like, right, you're a charlatan, you're a fraud. You don't have to use this language, right? So in my case, I was simply commenting about the content of what you said, right? And 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 I made sure to preface it by saying Sam has many great qualities. I really mm -hmm. like Sam. So to me, look, I don't. It, it's not a personal saga, but to me, it's a teachable moment, right? I, I, if if Sam ever listens to this conversation, he is going to come across as inf he, he will immediately rehabilitate anything that he may have lost if he says, you know what, I've thought about what persons X Y Z said. And in retrospect, maybe they could have been right on this because then that shows intellectual humility. If you are so dogmatic as it seems as though you are impenetrable to possible counting arguments, then it's exactly the things that we make fun of, the echo chambers. Yeah, but but you you're too clever for your own good. You know, you've got to remember people are also emotional beings, True. right? There is intellectual, which is what you're talking about, and that is what you've been trained in as an academic. Yeah. And there's also the person. Now, of course, I hear you. Sam is a, a, an eminent philosopher. And so, yes, you'd expect him to be. But human beings are human yeah. beings. And so when you are attacked by hundreds of thousands of people, it's probably quite difficult to go and watch every video and to go, well, Gad Sad, who is 
who the comments under whose videos are attacking me as a yeah. person, he was actually quite fair and balanced about this issue. So it's 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 not as simple. And look, r rather than talking about the personal stuff, I, I actually it's something interesting that I've been thinking about a lot in this context. And I'm I am not saying that this is what's happened with Sam. Yeah. But it's something I've been thinking about a lot because this comes back to the point of are we emotional beings or are we rational beings or are we a bit of both, which of course we are. I think I come from a very intellectual family. My Both my parents are high-level biochemical engineers. My grandfather, the one who had to flee the Soviet right. Union, he was a, an eminent physicist, astrophysicist. Nice. I come from a family of people who, who've trained themselves and, and therefore everyone around them to be super rational. And uh, one of the things that I think is a downside of this hyper-rationality is that I am this rational person, right? I am not driven by emotion. I am rational. Everything I think is a product of my rational mind. And then when you've got an emotional reaction to something, whether that's Brexit or Trump or COVID or Gad Sad or Constantin Kissin or whatever, you've been trained from, a, from the yeah. age of three that you're not allowed yeah. to have an emotional reaction, your reaction must be rational. Yeah. And so if I hate this person and I have an emotional reaction, I must cloak this in, in the mantle of rationality. And I think that's where intellectual people like all of us, not yeah. just Sam and me and you, but all of us, we sometimes allow our emotions to sort of like, they, they slip under the bonnet yeah. of, of what is, you know, of what is, ostensibly a rational argument about somebody that we dislike what? and you know that to me is a, a valuable part of this conversation it, it, both for you for me and for Sam yeah you know I, I love that you talked about the the, this, this, the supposed schism between emotions and thinking and you know feeling versus rationality because as you may remember in chapter 2 of the parasitic mind the entire chapter is on thinking versus feeling and there so let me repeat it because it, it, it is perfectly apropos to what we're talking about here what i argued in that chapter is that it is incorrect to put to pit the two emotion uh, the two systems against one another it's not that academics should be rational and not be swayed by their emotions or that man is thinking and not feeling we are absolutely both and there are clear evolutionary reasons why we would have evolved a very attuned cognitive and an emotional system the challenge constantin is when to know when to activate the right system so that yes right so when i'm walking down a dark alley because i'm taking a shortcut to get home and my affective system picks up my heart beat goes up my blood pressure goes up i start perspiring because i see four young men loitering that emotional response was perfectly rational right the emotion was rational right on the other hand if i'm trying to solve a astrophysics problem in an exam then all of the triggering of my emotional system is not going to allow me to solve it so in the case of sam and many many in the intelligentsia when it comes to donald trump What's happened to them is that they have allowed their emotional system to completely hijack their thinking, right? So, yes. So, Donald, so may I interrupt? Please, very briefly? please, please. Uh, I I don't disagree with you about you know what people call Trump derangement syndrome, and I, I do think that's true. I, I'm just saying that from the um, the reason I think this happens is not so much that they're hijacked, but rather they have a different view of the problem, which is. Uh, they see their country, quote unquote, going down the dark alley. Yeah. Right. And so their emotional reaction kicks in. And for some of them, I'm not saying this is the case for Sam, it may or may not be. The emotional reaction kicks in because they're going, the country is going down a dark yeah. alley. And then they rationalize the emotion. Of course. Of course. And, and present it as a rational argument, even though those of us who are maybe not affected or don't see it in that way. I don't then feel that this is appropriate. Right. right. So I think that's what may be happening with some people. Absolutely. And 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 what I'm about to say next applies not only to Sam but to the intelligentsia in general. Because when I wrote that chapter in the parasitic mind, it was much much bigger than one particular individual. I didn't even have Sam Harris in mind. I was talking about how the intelligentsia responded to Donald Trump. Right. So 
uh, actually, by coincidence, let me mention a situation that happened when I appeared on Sam's show before Donald Trump was elected. Because at the time, he was already arguing in public that anybody who could potentially vote for Donald Trump is an absolute maniac. I mean, that has no humanity. Every single one. As a matter of fact, on your show, he reiterated that whereby he gave one exemption to a single individual out of nearly 80 million people who voted for him. Do you remember who that individual is? I don't actually. Peter, Peter Thiel. He said, right. he said, he said, you know, Peter Thiel, whom I know well, might be the only guy that I can kind of, I'm paraphrasing what he said, right? So out of 80 million people, 79,999,999 were complete degenerates. They only sleep with their sister, they're toothless bigots. And, and that part I don't remember him saying. <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm adding to it, right? He said he, he, he cannot I'm believe, kidding. right? So that, that gets my goat, right? Not, not because it's Sam Harris, but because I abhor that kind of dehumanization of the other. You know, we're great in Germany, but if only we can get rid of this really serious problem called the Jews. And now this is rational. We just need to get rid of the parasites. If we get rid of this other group, then it will all be kumbaya. So when someone with Sam Harris's prestige and intelligence can repeatedly say, that it's impossible for him to have the theory of mind that can understand how any rational person could vote for Donald Trump, then I'm going to say, wait a minute, whatever friendship I had with you is superseded by me having to intervene and say, that's an insane statement. I even gave an explanation based in psychology of decision-making on how perfectly rational people could vote for Trump. Let me repeat it for you here, Constantine. There is a, there is a decision rule called the lexicographic rule which basically says whenever you're choosing between multi-attribute choices, Clinton versus Trump, you only look at your most important attribute and choose the alternative that scores higher on that attribute. So for example, if for me, immigration is my most important attribute, even if on every other attribute, Hillary Clinton crushed Donald Trump, I will never look at that information. I will only look at immigration policy since Trump scores higher in my view, rightly or wrongly, on immigration, I will vote for him. So I just gave you a very clear cognitive path by which perfectly rational people who apply the lexicographic rule can vote for Donald Trump. I explained this to Sam Harris very calmly so he can get it. And then for the next five years, everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a bigot and a toothless uh, incest, uh, whatever. Well, look, nobody in this conversation, uh, I, I think, agrees with the idea that everyone who voted for Donald Trump is evil or a moron. Uh, I, I certainly don't hold that view, which is why I let Sam express his point of view and then challenged him pretty robustly yeah, on it. Yeah, you did. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think, uh, you know, we, I don't want to, we can get into Trump. We probably don't sure. have the time. Sure. Um, but, yeah. Um, so from my perspective, I just think, um, I, uh, the, the most important thing for me, I will say this, uh, first and foremost was to reach out to Sam and make sure he's okay. Yes. Uh, because when you are, you know, in the, in the eye of the storm like that, uh, the way that he was, it's always difficult. And he, uh, was very, very gracious and actually congratulated us on doing a good job. So uh, nice. I'm glad I'm glad he's okay. Uh, that to me was the most important thing in all of this, no matter what he said. And let me add, let me show. add my official well wishes. There is zero, <laughs> at least from my part, there is zero animus from me towards Sam. Zero, nothing. I'm glad to hear it. Zip. My only concern is with some of the ideas that he espoused. It begins and ends there period. So there we go. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's move on from Trump and all that kind of good stuff before we, I know we have to wrap it up soon. You've been very kind with your time. Uh, what, are, what are the next projects? Okay, so you wrote that first great book. Mm. Are there any other books in mind? Do you have a three-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan for you? Tell us whatever you'd like to share in terms of that kind of issue. Well, uh, we just did a trip to the U.S., obviously, where yes. we recorded Sam and a bunch of people. We've got the, my favorite comedian, Bill Burr, Oh, yeah. uh, as one of our interviews, uh, a bunch of other great guests, Adam Carolla, you know, uh, a few comics we, we got in New York, etc. So lots of great interviews coming out, first of all. Uh, the second thing is out of the trip to the U.S., we realized just how much cool stuff there's going on over there. And we, we were going to go more reg. Well, not, I was going to say more regularly. That was our first trip ever. So we're going to go yeah. uh, for a short period of time and, and maybe 
next year, I mean, Joe, Joe Rogan was very kind and he was sort of suggesting that we should move over to Austin to, to be there with all the cool stuff that's happening. And we may do that for a couple of months a year and just see how we like it wow. and, and take it from there. Um, but, you know, we're going to be a British show for, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah, I haven't, uh, you know, writing a book with the sort of uh, intense schedule that I have at the moment wasn't easy the first time. And now my son is here as well. It's even uh, it's even more of a challenge. So uh, I'm going to take my time before thinking of the next one. Right now, it's, uh, it's all about trigonometry, which, as you rightly say, is really taken off in the last couple of years. Uh, I, you know, we, we are, you've got a team of 10 people that works with us now and we're building and building and building all the time. Wow. Uh, so uh, that's my focus right now. I, I want us uh, to be the sort of the Joe Rogan of Europe, if you like. That's how we often think about it, to be uh, the place for all these conversations where we can speak to Sam Harris and hear his view on Trump and then speak to you and hear your view on Trump and then speak to whoever. Um, you know, our slogan has always been honest conversations yes. with fascinating people. And that's really, to me, the antidote to many of the things that are happening in society now. We have to be, bring honesty and a willingness to talk about difficult ideas back to the table. And, and that's why for all my disagreement with what Sam said about Trump, I'm really grateful to him for coming yes. on the show. And here's why, Gad, as well. This is really important, too. It's not like Sam Harris is the one guy that thinks what he thinks right. about Trump. There are other people who think that. And I don't know. Are they going to be persuaded by the response that his comments received that maybe they've gone a bit far? I don't know. Maybe they will be more entrenched as a result. Right. It's hard for me to tell. But I do think we should at least be speaking honestly about what we believe. And Sam is... You know, the first person I've heard make that case that you and I both disagree with. Right. I think it's important, you know, as we know, the first step to solving a problem is admitting there is one. And I think part of the problem that we have to admit to ourselves is we're sort of constantly having these fake conversations. And we'd like on trigonometry to actually have the honest conversation and be a space where people can say what they think. And that's why I say my first concern was for Sam's well-being, because... I want people like him to be able to come on the show and say what he said. I think yeah. we're better off with him being able to say that thing that lots of people disagree with than everybody just hides and pretends that they don't actually think what they think. Per perfectly stated. Last question, and then stay on the line. I'll tell you goodbye offline. Uh, the Probably the most important question of this chat. Are you a soccer fan? Yes. Okay, so therefore this will be the most important question and it will determine whether we can continue our friendship or whether it ends right here. Who is your favorite British team? Everton. Mm. <laughs> Only because they suck, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to maintain our friendship. If you would have said one of those annoying teams like Manchester United or Liverpool, I'm a Manchester City guy. Let me tell you why. Not because they're champions. Because sure, sure. <laughs> honestly, because I'm into Tiki Taka, I'm into Kevin De Bruyne. I think if Kevin yeah. De Bruyne were to come around, I might leave my wife for him. And I'm not into same-sex attraction. I mean, I think the way the guy plays, he drives yeah. me crazy. It's, it's out of this world. Uh, but okay, everything. You want to tell us quickly why before uh, we say goodbye? Yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. I came to the UK in 1995, which was the year uh, Andrei Kanchelskis, who was the only Russian-Ukrainian player uh, in the Premier League at the time. Uh, he had moved from Manchester United right. to Everton. And if it hadn't been for that, I might actually have been supporting a team that's any good this whole time. <laughs> but what loyalty that you anchored in that position. It speaks to the fact that we don't anchor away once we commit. Boy, yeah. are we committed. 27 years later, you're still an Everton fan. Good for you. What, what a pleasure it is to talk to you uh, onward and upward. I'm, I'm sure that your, your channel is only going to continue to grow. Thank you so much for coming on, Constantine. And I'll talk to you soon. And let me just remind people, don't forget to go out immediately after listening to this chat. An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. It's a good one. Read it. Thank you so much, Constantine. Thanks, Gareth. Appreciate it. Cheers. Stay on the line.